And uh, please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're going to pick up at verse 11 today. And uh, we take a break from our series on the Christian family to continue our exposition of Hebrews. We return where we left off and consider Christ's priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. Now, this portion of the book, as you might be aware, is heavily doctrinal, and so we will do some heavy lifting, and it will require some spiritual heavy lifting from us to follow the apostles' argument. And uh, we are exhorted to be seeking after meat and not just milk. And so let us remember to do that as we come to the Word of God. So Hebrews 7, verse 11, and we will consider up to verse 19. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God, holy, inspired, and infallible. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment, going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray for the preaching. Our glorious God and Heavenly Father, how thankful we are to have the truth before us, that we can draw nigh unto you, O God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we can come into the holiest of holies with boldness, access to the throne of grace. And so we pray, Father, that you would enable your minister now to preach faithfully, to draw the people of God, not because of his words, but because of the Spirit's ministry, pointing them to Jesus Christ, that they would draw near through the preaching of the word and bless the congregation with the spirit of the Lord, that they would have their affections and thoughts set upon the heavenlies where Christ Jesus is even now interceding for them. And so, Father, we pray now that you would enable us to give glory to God and we would have us behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. O man knows on some level, all men who are religious know on some level that God is holy and unapproachable by sinners. And so though man being made in God's image and being made for the glory of God, man naturally, so to speak, seeks some fruition of God. But man will still want to keep God at arm's length by way of ceremony, by way of ritual, because to draw near to God, they know will be made, will make themselves undone by His piercing holiness. 
What is man's cry throughout the Bible? Do not let God come near to us. We hide like Adam did in the garden after he sinned. We say like uh, the people of God at Sinai, do not let God draw near to us because God is holy. And even Christians are not immune to this wanting to keep God at arm's length. Roman Catholicism is perhaps the best example of this. Rome has provided a priesthood, right, of mere men for you to confess your sins to, not having you go straight to God. She has a cavalcade of mediators in saints and in rituals designed to try in some way to appease the conscience because God is too holy to draw near to. But all of this clutter, all of these fake mediators, all of these rituals, they do not serve to draw us near to God, but actually keep us away from Him. And yet, here we find in the text something remarkable. The Bible says, draw nigh, draw near unto God. But how? How can sinners like us draw near to a holy God who is called a consuming fire? Only through Jesus Christ, the God-man, and by His high priestly office and work. In Christ and through His priestly work, God says remarkably, you can come very close to me. You can even enter with boldness the holiest place through my Son, Jesus Christ. He actually says, do not stay at arm's length. Embrace me through Jesus Christ. Put away the rituals. Put away the rites. Put away the old Levitical priesthood. Do not resurrect the veil that I tore from the heavens down to earth in the holiest place. Do not put it up. Draw near to myself through my son using his appointed means. And in Jesus, he says, my holiness will not destroy you, but will be a comfort to you and it will purify you and not consume you. Amazing the truths, glorious truths we must embrace in this world. That through Jesus, we can have constant communion with the holy God of heaven. And so our theme is, you can draw very near to God through Christ's priesthood. You can draw very near to God through Christ's priesthood, which really, you know, this should be the longing of every born-again heart, to draw near to God, to come close to God. This is what we are made for, people of God. This is what eternity is like, to come close to God. And God beckons us sinners who believe through Christ's priesthood. And we'll consider that theme under two heads. First is that Christ's priesthood removes the ceremonial law. And second, Christ's priesthood draws us nigh unto God. First, his priesthood removes the ceremonial law. Now, we ought to remember our context, for it has been several weeks since we have been here. And you might recall that the apostle has been defending Christ's qualifications to be our high priest. Because Jews who are hostile to Jesus had made the argument to the believing Jews, these Hebrews here, that Jesus Christ could never be a high priest for the people of God. Why? Because he did not descend from Levi, but he descended from Judah. And that the high priests of Aaron's order must come from Levi by Levitical law. And so what were they saying? You must give up on Jesus. You must return to the temple 
and its old Aaronic priesthood. The very thing the apostle warns them they must never do. Otherwise, they would be lost. Because to do so, to return to the Aaronic order, would not have them draw near to God. But he says later on, it would draw you near to perdition. Hebrews 10.39 But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. All of you must know to draw back from Christ for any reason takes you to perdition. But to believe on Christ through thick and thin leads to the saving of the soul. Praise God. But the apostle has to deal with the objection that is raised. How can Christ be a high priest for us, but not be of Levi's tribe? You know, Paul does not avoid the objection. He does not hand wave it away, but he deals with it headlong. In verses 13 through 14, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. He's speaking of Jesus. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Paul doesn't hand wave the problem. He admits the problem. He says, yes, it's very clear that Jesus Christ is of Judah and not of Levi. And so he cannot be of the, the priesthood that Moses spoke of. And it pains me to say this, but I'll say it. Christ is unqualified to be a priest of Aaron's order. He's unqualified. He sprang up out of the tribe of Judah, as his genealogy says, and as was prophesied by God, right? The scepter will not depart from Judah. The king who comes will be of Judah's tribe. And you've seen in the Bible, and perhaps this is something that was pressing on the Jews, what happened when a man of Judah tries to take the priest's office. You remember King Uzziah and how he was struck with leprosy for attempting to do the priest's work. Second Chronicles 26, 17 through 19. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and, and we always root for Azariah, right? And with him, fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king, right? Because he's of Judah. And said unto him, It appertaineth not unto the Uzziah to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. Azariah is right. It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah. And the Jews who opposed Jesus made the very same point. Perhaps they thought they were doing Azariah's work in opposing Jesus. But the Apostle Paul, what he does is he goes to the Scripture to ask the Hebrews, as Jesus so often did, and you heard this morning, have ye not read? And he takes up Psalm 110, a messianic psalm that shows us that Messiah, the Christ, would be three things. He would be God in the flesh. He would be a king, as we have sung, and he would be a priest. And crucially, not a priest of Aaron's order, but of the order of Melchizedek. You know, Jehovah speaks to his Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 4, and says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Paul cites that in our 17th verse. 
For he testified, this is the, have ye not read, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the apostle does not sweep the objection under the rug. He meets it head on and says it was the Lord's design that Christ should not be of Aaron's order. It is no innovation we bring. It is no new doctrine, but an ancient one given of God comes straight out of Psalm 110 verse 4. We have dealt with some of this argumentation before in the book, but now the apostle is really now shifting. He's shifting from defense to offense. As they say, right, the best defense is a good offense. And he says that the reason that Christ must be of Melchizedek's order is because of the deficiencies in Aaron's order. Verse 11, and he says, and he fires a shot across the bow, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? He says plainly, perfection was never attained and could never have been attained under Aaron's order. If it could be, he says, why would the Lord say another priesthood is coming? You need to remember, when was this, when was this prophecy in Psalm 110 given? It was under David's kingdom, wasn't it? This was the height of the Levitical order. When everything seemed to be going right, in other words, right? Before all the, the, the pollutions in worship. But David, even then, prophesied something was better. Something better was coming in his son to come. David was given the psalm by the Lord. And psalms like the 51st psalm, what do you remember of this? And our hope as we sing it. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Even at the height of the Levitical priesthood, there is something going on that God is prophesying that perfection does not come from the Levites and their priesthood. Something else is coming. Verse 11 says, Aaron's order cannot give us perfection. Now what does he mean by perfection? Really, you can just sum it up like this. It is the giving of grace necessary for glory. The giving of grace we need for glory. Levi's system with its Levitical law could never perfect us. It could never cleanse us. It could never regenerate us. It could never sanctify us. It could never glorify us. In other places, he presses the point in Hebrews 9.9, both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Our conscience cannot be cleansed by the mere killing of animals and the shedding of their blood. Hebrews 10.1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image or substance of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered, here it is, year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. So Levi's system and its law, what it was, was a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to Christ, but it could never perfect us. The very fact, right? This seems so obvious in hindsight, doesn't it? If a sacrifice is being offered year by year, continually, clearly they are not perfecting us because we need to offer them all the time. 
Otherwise, why offer sacrifices if we are perfected by them? Right? This is the difference between Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. It perfects us. How unlike Christ the Levitical order is, Christ could say, it is finished on the cross, a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, you might notice here that the law features prominently in our text. Verse 11 says of Levi's priesthood, for under it the people received the law. And in verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. This is very interesting. It says that uh, with the change of the priesthood, uh, the law has been changed as well. But, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit before, when, when the New Testament speaks of the law, our immediate question ought to be, what law is being spoken of here? Right? Because we can come to an erroneous idea. What law is he talking about? And the Bible knows three categories of law, as you well know. And when the law is spoken of, you have to know what category it is speaking of. Boys and girls, do you know what the three categories of law are? They are moral, they are civil, and they are ceremonial. Those are the three categories here. The moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. The civil law is the law that governs civil uh, affairs of Israel. But the ceremonial law is the law of the Levites to manage the temple and its sacrifices. And it is that law that has changed when the priesthood changed. It's plain to see in the Bible the Ten Commandments do not go anywhere. It's still against the law to murder. It's still against the law to have any other God besides Jehovah, etc. And in Romans 3.31, Paul speaks of that law in this way. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Otherwise, it would be like the, the, the apostles speaking out two sides of his mouth. But the moral law will not go anywhere, friends. It will always endure. And so when we read of a change of law here, we carefully deduce the law it is. Context shows us this is the law of ceremonies, the Levitical law. The animal sacrifices, the ritual washings, and so on, all connected to the temple, went away when the priesthood changed. Consider Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. For he, that is Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both one, meaning Jew and Gentile, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And here is the key. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, but listen, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. These are the laws that are abolished. The ceremonial laws that are signified by the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And when Christ did his work, Blessedly, all those ordinances were done away with. Because the rule given here is when the priesthood changes, the law, the ceremonial law must change. And on whose authority? Paul's authority? No. The church's authority? No. God's authority. This is God's design. And the apostle continues his offensive against the Aaronic order. He stresses how weak and unprofitable the ceremonial laws were in verses 18 and 19. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, and this really is going to um, be a matter of great controversy to the Jews, isn't it? For the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, for the law made nothing perfect. That's important. Can the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament ceremonies make a man perfect? No. All right. What are they called? Weak 
and unprofitable when it comes to perfecting us. Now, please understand, they were perfectly suited. God didn't create something defective. They were perfectly created for what they were meant to do. And their purpose was what? To point us to Christ and to show our need, to demonstrate to us that these ceremonies are not what you need. You need the substance, which is Christ himself. Their, their purpose, purpose was to point us to Jesus, to grow our desire for him, to show him as the one the ceremony signified, to see Jesus as coming to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world once and for all. John the Baptist was so well prepared, wasn't he? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is the one we have been preparing for. This is the one the ceremonies have showed us. Because while the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament ceremonies were weak and unprofitable, they were perfect in their design to show our need for Jesus and to cast our hope on him. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. They were to prepare us for Christ and his priesthood that alone can perfect us. Now, we've looked at the negative here, right? That the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament ceremonies could not perfect us. But what's the positive here? That Christ can. Doesn't that fill the heart of the believer with yearning for Christ? That Christ can perfect us? Because the implication of the fact that Aaron's order could not is that Jesus' order, the order of Melchizedek, can Jesus will perfect you, believer. What a thought to hold on to. What a promise that is from God. All our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus and his priesthood. And he will work his grace in us to make us more holy and one day carry us to glory where there will be no more sin. And no more will sin plague us as it does today. And what a thought that is to the child of God that Jesus Christ can perfect us through faith Jesus applies his perfect work in us, leading us to perfection and glory. What does it say in the Bible? That the work he has begun in you, he will take to completion. He will bring to perfection. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 Could Aaron do that for you? No, Aaron's dead. Consider the old Levitical ceremonies. Could those do it for you? No, but Jesus can. And with the removal of these old ceremonies, Jesus has given us such blessed simplicity in gospel worship now. The law of the old ceremonies are gone. He has our faith feed on simple ordinances to give us grace. The word of God read and preached. Prayer to the God of heaven. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are the ordinary means by which the gospel is applied to us by faith and we are perfected by him. All the old ordinances are gone, replaced with simple, and here's the word, spiritual ordinances. Not the law of carnal things, as this text says, and the trappings of the old ceremonies, gone as well. The laws that regulated the temple and its services, all gone. As Jesus prophesied, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. John 4.21 But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23 to 24. But here's the thing. We go back to our introduction. Men often want something more, something more than simple and spiritual worship of Christ. And they want to reintroduce these old things that have passed away. Uh, A minister from another denomination spoke to us at our church planters retreat. That's why I wasn't with you this last Lord's Day. I was in charge of, it was an RP service, so I was in charge of structuring the worship services, though this man preached. After the morning service, it was so wonderful. He came up to me and he said, I really enjoyed this. He asked, is your, are your services on the Lord's Day this simple? And I said, yes. Yes, it is. And he said, this is wonderful. It's all scripture. He said, it's all just the ordinary means of grace. And he was refreshed by that. You see, friends, our services in the New Testament are meant to remove all the clutter that keeps us from drawing near to God. We go directly to God through Jesus Christ, through very simple means, spiritual means. But like the Hebrews, we are tempted to go back to the old system of rites and rituals. That's the problem with the papacy. They desire to copy the old temple system in their priesthood. But what do we say? What does this text say? Weak and unprofitable. It cannot perfect us. What can? Simple faith in Christ exercised through gospel means of grace. Christ alone in his simple New Testament ordinances, that is how we are perfected from bit by bit, transformed by the glory of God into the glory of God. This is a constant struggle even in Protestantism. You remember uh, our own history. The reason I bring up history is because even the world has this adage, right? Those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. You remember, what is the history of Presbyterianism? It comes out of Anglicanism. And the Puritans and Presbyterians sought to reform the Church of England. That was adding back popish ceremonies to the worship of God. But this is what our forefathers fought and sometimes died for. Far from drawing the people of God close to God, such ordinances actually keep us at arm's length from God. The Puritans would say, we want the pure, spirit-filled preaching of the gospel. We want prayers lifted to the God of heaven through Jesus, the mediator, and by the Holy Spirit. We want to feed on Christ together at his table through the sacrament. We want, as we saw this morning, the waters of baptism to be poured out on converts and their children. And that is all, because that is where we find Christ. So as we say, we sweep away all else that man would come up with and You have to deal with this, and I will bring this to you. To get rid of them is not legalism. To add them is legalism. Because you are adding things that Christ doesn't want and hasn't asked for. Your faith must long for simple and clear, pure spiritual worship. You say no to ceremonies, rites, and rituals that are called here weak and unprofitable. You're to say no to Levi's old priesthood and its trappings that are done away with. You say yes and amen to Christ's superior priesthood that draws us nigh to God. You say give us the simplicity of the gospel and gospel worship where we find true hope and nearness to God. And I always love this text here in Colossians 2.13 because you ask, where have the ceremonies gone? Nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way as he sweeps it away, nailing it to his cross. When our great high priest finished his work on the cross, all the old ordinances were nailed to it, gone and done, blotted away, so that we might find rest and hope in his cross. And we say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Resist any attempt to bring the ceremonies back into the church. Today, and in a lot of ways we we admire their zeal, you know, you have Messianic Jews And we admire their zeal in so many ways, especially as they have Paul's zeal for their countrymen. But we have to resist their idea of reintroducing things like the Passover and Seder. Because those things are gone. Christ is our Passover. And he has abolished the old ceremonies. This is a gospel issue, friends. It's not a secondary one. It is Judaizing to return to the ceremonies. And to return to them is going to obscure the work of Jesus Christ. Why should we have a Passover lamb when the lamb of God was slain? The substance. Why do we need a lamb, an animal, when we have the substance in Christ? This is, this used to be universally understood too in the church, but that's why we don't use musical instruments in worship. I want to touch on that. They were part of the Levitical order of Aaron. And when the priesthood changed, the Levites were removed. And so the instruments, we can say, were nailed to Christ's cross. All the accoutrements of the Levitical system are to be thrown out. They are weak and unprofitable. They are carnal. And here's the thing, friends. They, f- they please the flesh. It's almost like that old joke, right? I'm doing something, right? We feel like I'm doing something. That's what they often are. It's a sense that I'm contributing in some way to the work of God. And we must get rid of that. Men love ceremonies because it pleases their flesh. They do it, and here's the thing, right? At the end of the day, if you really dive into it, and I'm not so far removed from remembering these days, they do it because they like them. They like them. Not because they've asked, does God like them? I want the music for me. I like hearing it. I like smelling incense. I like the vestments on the minister or priest. But Christ has nailed those to the cross. And if every Levitical ordinance keeps us from God, how much more, we say, the ones that men whip up from their own imaginations and aren't even here in the Bible. So, in contrast to that, we conclude with our second and final head. Christ's priesthood draws us nigh unto God. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, now speaking of these ordinances, But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which, oh, what blessed words, we draw nigh unto God. What is the blessed hope here? The hope that David received in the 110th Psalm, that a better priesthood would come of the order of Melchizedek, that Christ, the Son of God, would come to be our high priest. And when was that hope brought in? When the fullness of the time had come. When God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4. When Jesus Christ, son of David, came into the world, David's better hope had come. He, the son of God, was that better hope than the Levitical system. And through him, what does the text say? We draw nigh unto God. 
Boys and girls, you draw near to God through Jesus Christ, through his priestly work. Human priests, human rituals can never draw you near to God. And boys and girls, you have to remember that before you leave your parents' house. You'll be tempted by them. But let us dwell more on this blessed idea that we can draw near to God through Jesus. Now, this is really a litmus test for us. Is not drawing near to the most holy and blessed God in a way where we can commune with him and we can have the joy of his presence, is that not supposed to be the greatest joy and hope that sinners like us could have? Is that where you're at, friend? That you think of drawing nigh unto God is really the most blessed thought to you. That must be your most blessed hope now. Whatever you have come here hoping for, let me say, this is the hope that we must have. To draw close to the God of heaven, our creator, our sustainer, the most perfect being, the most glorious entity you could ever know, the most fascinating, the most captivating person of all. Is that who God is to you? And is the thought that I can draw near to the God of heaven like that? And you see, I've said this so many times. I'll say it again. Our hope as Christians is not that we are saved from hell, but that we have communion with God. That is our hope, friends, that we will have forever, forever communion with God. That's where so many of us get it wrong. To draw near to God is to have true happiness. Psalm 73, 28. But it is good for me to what? Draw near to God. Isn't that what the psalmist says? But what came before that in Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26? And is this your heart? Really, this is the Lord inquiring. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is he your portion? Is he your inheritance? Is he the one that you long for? Is he the one that you want forever? Boys and girls, you might remember from your shorter catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him. To enjoy him forever. You see, our forefathers could have stopped it there, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God. But it's actually to glorify God and to enjoy him. You see, if we would understand that our enjoyment, our true happiness is found in God, we would long to draw nigh unto God. For he is the source and fountain of happiness. And did you know, boys and girls, that Psalm 73 that I have cited is the scripture proof for enjoying him? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is enjoyment of God. You must enjoy God by saying, it is good for me to draw near to God. Because in his presence is blessedness and joy forever. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Do you want joy? Do you want true pleasure? Draw nigh unto God through Jesus Christ. Those who know God this way, their heart leaps for joy when they read that by Jesus' priesthood we draw nigh unto God. All that work of drawing us to God is on Jesus Christ. 
We didn't have to climb some mountain to get near to God. He draws us nigh to God. He beckons us. Come close, very close to God, child of God. This is His work. Ask yourself this. Is this not the whole aim of true religion, to be near to God? It is. Nothing else matters ultimately but to be near and oh so near to God. And the Old Testament believer would be so astonished, beloved, by how close you can get to God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Having therefore, brethren, here's that word, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And here it is, having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the gospel hope, that through Jesus Christ you have not even a timid entrance to God, but boldness to enter the absolute most holiest place. Could you imagine? I can only imagine Aaron reading this. The Old Testament priests had no such boldness, did they? They quivered to enter the Holy of Holies. They had a rope tied around them and a bell attached to them in case God struck them dead. And their carcass had to be removed from the holiest place because nobody else could get in there. And they had to be dragged out, their carcass. How astonishing it would be for them to hear of the boldness you have to come to God. Why? Because of our high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He was struck down by a holy God so that his blood could be shed for us, so that we, poor and miserable sinners that we are, can draw near to God, that his blood will sprinkle our evil consciences, and his water that flowed out of his sides would wash our bodies, that we can come near to God. What a priest God has given us, that we can have the joy of knowing God, the joy of fellowship with God, that we can have God as our Father, Well, let's look at the glory of Christ's priesthood once again in verses 16 and 17. This is so beautiful. Who was made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. What a wonderful expression that is. The power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is what God has sworn, that Jesus Christ would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is this law of carnal commandment? The Old Testament priest died. Aaron died. Aaron's sons died. The carnal commandment was that, and this is the commandment, the Levitical commandment, that when the father died, the son took up the office. But not with Jesus. Our Lord has the power of an endless life. He will never be removed from office. John 5, 26 For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. He has life in himself. This will come to a head later in verses 24 through 25. For because of the power of his endless life, this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is the power of an endless life that Christ has. 
He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is ever there in the heavens for you, child of God, interceding. Even now, He is interceding for us. Even now, He's interceding for our sluggishness in worship. He is interceding for all the deficiencies we offer up to God. Because of His endless life, you are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Because of His power. Could Aaron ever do that for you? Could the Pope in Rome ever do that for you? No. Because of Jesus, you with faith can never, ever be lost. You can draw nigh unto God at any time, any time. You wake up in the middle of the night troubled in your soul, and you can draw nigh unto God through Jesus. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121, verse 4. Whenever you fall into sin, Jesus will draw you nigh unto God, applying his blood to cover your evil conscience when you need it. When Satan desires to sift you, he is praying in the heavenlies that your faith faileth not. His ministry is never ending to you, Christian. Heaven's throne is open 24-7 for you. Why? Because Jesus is ever there before God, drawing you nigh unto God, always saying, come take forgiveness, come enjoy fellowship with us through my ordinances. Faith must say, why would we ever go back to Aaron when we have Jesus of the order of Melchizedek? This was David's greater hope. And it was so far off for him, wasn't it? He died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and was persuaded of them, and embrace them. And we have that greater hope that David prophesied of. We have Christ's greater priesthood, beloved. It has come to us at the end of the age. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Hebrews 11.40 So the exhortation tonight is this. Take advantage of what Christ has earned for you. Access with boldness to God. Access to draw near unto God. A holy God. Are you taking advantage of it, friend? How sad it is when you see the fervency of those who vainly go to God through rituals. You see the Muslims who pray five times a day ritually. And you say, how is it that the Christian doesn't even pray once sometimes in a day? Though they have direct access to the throne of God. Are you taking advantage of it? You see, Muslims make pilgrimages to Mecca. They're fervent in their vain attempts to go to God, like the priests of Baal. But the Christian has direct and bold access to the throne of grace, to fellowship with the Lord, to be near to Him. And how many, how many, sadly, of us do not take the opportunity? Christ has done such great and marvelous things. Christ has suffered. You think on this. He suffered greatly to draw us nigh unto God. Yet he looks down from heaven, and what does he see? So few of us taking advantage of his work to draw us nigh unto God. So few. Go, child of God, and enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. Go and enjoy. This is your chief end, is to enjoy God. Go enjoy the fellowship you have with God. Your use of the means of grace is not meant to be a chore to you. You are to enjoy God. I should say, first thing in the morning, right? My most blessed time of the day is to open the book and to hear from my beloved. 
and to pray to the God of heaven, to, to lay my burdens, that I am coming at the, at the very feet of the throne of grace, and I, he is listening to me as his child, and he is saying, lay your burdens on me. Ask for help for your day. And how few of us will do it. But this is what God has given us in Christ. Bless him and praise him all the day for Jesus Christ and his royal priesthood. And be filled with the joy of knowing God and drawing nigh unto him. Well, with such hope before us, I will leave that to your meditation. Let's leave Hebrews here tonight and let us praise and bless the Lord. Let's rise for prayer if able. Oh, our Father in heaven, the work of Christ is incredible. And yet we often take it for granted, Father. We confess this before you. Give us a heart to enjoy you, Father. Give us a heart to enjoy God. So many of us, we confess, Father, see communion with God as kind of a a difficult duty rather than a great joy. So many of us, Father, do not say with the psalmist, Who have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. We do not say, my flesh and my heart faileth, or if we do, we don't go to you, Father. We don't say that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. O Lord, make this world seem as ash in our mouth, and Lord, help us to enjoy communion with you, and how we bless you for giving us a great high priest over the house of God, this great Jesus Christ, the Son of God of the order of Melchizedek. We bless you and praise you for his work that uh, would astonish our forefathers in the faith in the Old Testament, that we have boldness through him to come to the very throne of grace. Bless your people here tonight with a remembrance of these things when they need it most, and have us all draw nigh unto God more today than we did yesterday. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.